Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Hey, Real Life Church, it's Pastor Jim. It's good to be with you again. God bless you this week. We're in the middle of a series of teachings on the subject of holiness. God calls us to live holy lives. And as I told you last week, that word didn't sit with me well when I was younger because I associated it with legalistic, oppressive religion that was really just a matter of sin management. And I didn't really feel like that's what Jesus was about. In fact, the way I thought about holiness in my younger years is a lot like what I read in a little book on morality and manners that was published in 1880 and has been published repeatedly over the last uh, 100 plus years. And the book is called Don't, uh, available at a bookseller near near you. And what it is, is just a thousand uh, or more little sentences about how to behave, about how to be well-mannered, and they all begin with the word don't. So it's just this string of negative commands. Uh, And I'll read you a few of them so you understand the the context here. Don't carry your hands in your pockets. Don't thrust your thumbs into the armholes of your waistcoat. Don't chew or nurse your toothpick in public or anywhere else. Don't use a toothpick except for a moment to remove some obstacle. And don't have the habit of sucking your teeth. Don't chew tobacco. It is a bad and ungentlemanly habit. The neatest tobacco chewer cannot wholly prevent the odor of tobacco from affecting his breath and clinging to his apparel. Uh, Don't, as hostess, insist upon taking a caller's hat or cane. Pay no attention to these articles. It is right that he should carry them. It is not right that you should notice them. Don't be in uh, a precipitate hurry to get into a chair. It is just as graceful, as easy, and as proper to stand and it is easier to converse when in that attitude. Uh, Here's a chapter on speech. Don't speak ungrammatically. Study books of grammar and the writings of the best authors. Don't pronounce incorrectly. Listen carefully to the conversation of cultivated people and consult the dictionaries. Don't mangle your words or smother them or swallow them. Speak with distinct enunciation. Don't talk in a high, shrill voice and avoid nasal tones. Cultivate a chest voice. Learn to moderate your tones. Talk always in a low register, but not too low. And it goes on like this for 100 pages, 100 little tiny pages, just a 1,000 negative commands all about behavior. And when I was younger, if someone said the word holiness, this is what I thought of. Holiness is for those religious people who are just concerned about not breaking any rules, and they are constantly walking around saying, don't. But as I've read the biblical teaching about holiness, I've come to find something completely different. I said last week, there's holiness for its own sake that just puts on a show for other people. Holiness just for the sake of being holy so that people respect you or revere you or fear you. It's like people when I was young who told me, you have to dress up for church. You have to wear a suit and a tie. You have to wear polished shoes. You have to sit quietly. 
And I would say, why? Why do I have to dress up like that? And they would say, because, because you're going to God's house. And if you're going to meet the president of the United States, you'd dress up for him, wouldn't you? Well, how much more should you dress up for God? Well, my relationship with God is very different than my relationship with the president of the United States. My relationship with God is intimate. Jesus called me his friend. God calls me his child. He's not looking for an external performance. In fact, repeatedly throughout the Bible, including in the teachings of Jesus, God says, don't be obsessed with your outward performance because God sees your heart. There's holiness for its own sake that's just a show, but then there's holiness for our, our sake, holiness for our health and well-being, for our character and our integrity for our happiness and our relationship with God. Holiness for our sake empowers us, and it sets us free, and it pleases our Father. So today, I want to look at holiness that pleases God and what it means for our holiness to signify our relationship with a God who loves us. Pray with me. Father, I thank you that you love us and that you choose us and that you take us in the mess that we are and out of the messes that we have created. And you, you begin to shape in us, to make in us something holy, something set apart, chosen and special. Jesus, by the power of your Spirit, enable us to lay before your cross those things that get in the way of our relationship with you. Set us free to live lives of grace and love. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You know, I was looking at the, the teachings of the scriptures and I noticed something I had not thought of before. There are, there are two gardens in the Bible. There's the Garden of Eden in the beginning in the story of Genesis, the original garden in which humanity is placed, this, this perfect place on earth where humanity lives in an uninterrupted relationship with God. And there's the Garden of Eden, uh, the Garden of uh, Gethsemane, the garden in which Jesus prays just before he's crucified. And it strikes me that as I look at the story of these two gardens, that the Christian faith is a tale of two gardens. Here's the story of what happened in the Garden of Eden in the beginning, when Adam and Eve were created to live in relationship with God. God planted them in the garden along with a tree of knowledge of good and evil and told them, don't eat from this tree. But a serpent, a serpent in the garden came along and tricked Eve uh, and convinced her to take the forbidden fruit. The serpent said, God knows when you eat from that tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, <clears throat> she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. The initial act of the, the first humans is to reject the will of God to do what seems best to them. And that's the significance of the Garden of Eden. It is the, the place in which we betrayed the will of the Creator. 
the kids at the high school, my son's a junior at the high school this year, but the kids at the high school are, are reading a book by John Steinbeck, the famous American author, called East of Eden. Uh, and it's a, a novel set in California, uh, 1880s to 1920s, right around there. And, and in the book, Steinbeck wrestles with this question of whether or not we are determined to be who we are by our genetic makeup, by our nurturing and family life, by our culture, the, the world into which we're born, or whether or not we have a real freedom to choose to break the bonds of sin and brokenness that hold on to us, to, to break the mistakes of a previous generation, to live a healthier, better life. Well, here's what the Bible says about that. God made us to have that kind of freedom, and given the freedom to choose, we reject the will of our Creator. We reject the uninterrupted relationship with the God who loves us. And because of that, we now live in a state of brokenness. We're born in a state of brokenness. We break it further, and we cannot wholly choose to do right in this world. Adam and Eve are just a representation of what we all are. We are a species at war with our Creator. And that's the significance of the Garden of Eden. It was the place that God created to be perfect, to which we said no. Now, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, the one person to have lived a sinless life, goes to pray to the Father. And he realizes that he is facing a horrific torture and crucifixion. And he prays to be set free from that. This is how the story goes. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. In the second garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, the human being who is without sin accepts the will of the father. He does not reject it the way Adam did. The Garden of Gethsemane is an answer to the Garden of Eden the way Christ is an answer to Adam. Through Adam's sin entered the world, and through Christ, redemption comes. Jesus is called the new Adam because given the opportunity for an uninterrupted relationship with the Father, he accepted it to the point of death and did not reject it. And it strikes me that the whole of the Christian life is moving from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane. Moving from a place where we have rejected God and insisted on doing things by our own power, and instead moving to a place where we surrender to God and accept His will instead of our own. I remember seeing a professor at UC Berkeley who is a, a law professor a famous professor, he'd written a, a law textbook that had become definitive, and I believe is still used in the schools. But midway through life, he went through a divorce and a crisis of conscience, and his life sort of fell apart. And he said, at that point, I turned to a faith from my childhood, and I renewed my commitment to Jesus. 
And at that point, he began writing books about faith and, and the church. And his writings at that point took on a whole new significance beyond what he had already done as a lawyer. It, it, he came to the point where he admitted he was powerless to make his life right despite his vast successes. And at that point, he handed his life over to God, at which point God did things with his life that he could not have done himself. He moved from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane, to a place where he rejected God's will because he thought he could do it better, to a place where he surrendered to God's will because he decided that God's will was best. The call to holiness is a call to lay down our lives and let God's will reign through us. Not because God wants a miserable life for us, but because God wants what is best for us. So the question becomes, how do we do that? And that question is answered by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. In this book, Paul is painting a picture of what the Christian life looks like. And having described the gospel of Jesus Christ, he now comes to a place where he begins to tell us what we ought to do with our lives once we believe that Jesus died for us on the cross. In Romans 12:1, he tells us what it looks like to live a, a holy life. Here's how to do it. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, the Hebrews knew about sacrifices because their worship consisted of going to the temple to bring animals from their flocks or crops from, from their fields and offering them on an altar where a priest would burn them as a gift to God. The idea of offering yourself on an altar is surrendering yourself to be consumed wholly for God's use. And Paul says, that's real worship. Give yourself wholly over to God's use. Surrender your will so that God's will might reign in you. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Uh, and here he uses the same uh, verb that's used in Philippians chapter 2 when it says, Jesus uh, took on the, the likeness of a servant, took on the form of a servant. He appeared in this world as a servant, as one who was humble, a human being instead of the, the glorious one of heaven. He looked like one of us. Paul says, don't look like the things of this world. Don't be conformed to the likeness of everything that's going on around you. The simple English here is don't fit in. Don't fit in. If you look just like everybody else, you have not offered yourself as a living sacrifice. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the word transformed in Greek is metamorphoste, which, from which we get metamorphosis. You should picture here a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. Don't be conformed to the likeness of this world, but instead be transformed. Don't look like a caterpillar anymore. Look like something completely different. Be changed from the inside so that what your life is just looks radically different than the world around you through the renewing of your mind. And, and I, you know, I honed in on that because this now seems to be the heart of the issue. If I renew my mind, I can be transformed. If, I transform, if I'm transformed, I can be a sacrifice to God. So how do, I, 
How do I renew my mind? And this word is used only one other place in the New Testament, which is in Titus, uh, also written by Paul, where Paul says, this is not something you can do by your own power. Only the Holy Spirit can do this within you. And uh, the, the same word is used by the ancient Jewish historian Josephus in the first century, who tells the story about a man who had insulted a king because he thought the king was dead. And then he finds out that the king's alive, and now he realizes that he's insulted the king, and the king is going to kill him. And he is afraid for his life. And he becomes terrified because he said things that he should not have said about the king, thinking that the king was dead. And then the news comes to him. No, actually, the second report was wrong. The king actually is dead. You're fine. And the man feels such relief and such joy. There's a complete renewal within him where his, his whole world is transformed, not because of anything he did, but because of news from the outside comes to him that he is no longer going to die. He has new life. And that's what the gospel does in our hearts. We hear that the king of this world no longer has power. He has been defeated. And so we will no longer die. We have new life. Because Jesus died for us on the cross, we do not have to die a spiritual death. We now are set free in this world to live lives of love and generosity, and then we are welcomed into eternity where we live for, in peace forever. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the receiving of this news from the outside of something that has changed in the world so that you no longer have to die. Be completely changed in the way you appear to this world because your mind is renewed by the good news. That's the call of Paul here in Romans 12. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Then you'll be able to discern what God's will is. Test and approve here, uh, the, the words that are used come from metallurgy, from testing to make sure a kind of metal is pure. Because in the ancient world, sometimes a... Uh, a tricky salesman, a tricky businessman would taint expensive metals with cheaper metals so as to save money. So you'd, you'd mix a little a junk metal in with your silver so you could keep the silver for yourself. And in, in metallurgy, they would develop methods of determining whether this was pure gold or tampered gold so that you could find out what, what the real stuff is. And when we're renewed by the Holy Spirit coming into us, with the good news of Jesus, it changes us, it transforms us through the renewing of our mind. And it sets our minds right so that we can perceive what God's will really is. And there's kind of a, there's kind of a freaky supernatural element to this where when, when you live a holy life, you open yourself up to the voice of the Holy Spirit guiding your daily experience, leading you where he wants you to go. And you begin to have these supernatural divine appointments where God puts you in someone's life to connect with them, to talk to them about things that matter, to love them and care for them when they most need it, to point them towards Jesus and to change their eternity. The whole of the Christian life is moving from Eden to Gethsemane, to aligning ourselves with God's will so that we can hear clearly what God is really saying and not be deceived by false stuff. Um, it reminds me of, 
back in the 19, mid 19th century, a lot of people flocked to California for the gold rush because they heard there was gold in the hills here. Uh, and it was possible sometimes that somebody would find a chunk of what looked like gold and come down the mountain thinking that they had gotten rich. And in fact, what they had found was pyrite or what's called fool's gold. It looks like a shiny gold rock, but it's not worth anything at all. And California became known as the golden state because of the gold rush out here. And people continued to flock to California looking for gold of one kind or another. They flocked to Hollywood looking for fame and fortune or to San Francisco looking for the wildlife. And what they were given was pyrite. What they were given was cheap and without value. And now there are broken lives littering the streets of California cities from people who were sold uh, the, the, the fake thing, not the real thing. We seek to be transformed by inviting the Holy Spirit in to bring the good news of the gospel of Jesus and change us from the inside in ways that we cannot do ourselves. It strikes me that the Christian life is then a series of surrenders. And there's at least three that I can name for you. This act of making ourselves a living sacrifice is a, is a surrender to Jesus, where we go to Jesus and we say, I can't do life on my own. I need you to come and do this for me. I need you inside of me, guiding me and leading me. I can't do this by my own power. It's kind of like what they teach in uh, the 12-step program in Alcoholics Anonymous, where the first step is admit that you're powerless. The second step is admit that there's a, a God out there. And the third step is give power over to God. Uh, some people... Many people have heard that, but they don't know the, the history of where that came from. It actually came from Oxford, England. Uh, Oxford has this rich history of, of pursuits of holiness. Going back to John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church a couple hundred years ago, who formed a group of very pious, devout, committed individuals who spent hours a day dedicating their lives to studying Scripture and praying and seeking to be holy of asking each other questions about whether or not they were living holy lives. And they were so intense about it, they were so committed to it, that other people made fun of them and said, look at how methodical they're being. We'll just call them Methodists. They're so methodical. And they took the name on, even though it was an insult. Yeah, we're, we're being methodical on purpose because we want to be disciplined about living holy lives. And so there's this culture uh, ever since then, of renewals in faith and holiness around Oxford, England. There was sort of a spiritual groundwork that was laid. And in 1921, an American pastor named Frank Buckman uh, got in a fight with his church here in America and quit his job. Uh, he got in a fight with the, the board members because he wanted to give more money to the children's ministry and the board didn't. And he got mad at them and they argued with each other and he quit. And so he went off to England on sort of a sabbatical vacation, de dejected and depressed. Uh, and when he was there, he stumbled into a sermon. He went to a church and heard a sermon, and he describes a spiritual experience that happened when he was there. He says he's, uh, he's in church, and his mind is drifting back to the, the board of these six men uh, with whom he ended up in conflict. He said, I thought of those six men back in Philadelphia who I felt had wronged me, and they probably really had, but I got so mixed up in the wrong that I was the seventh wrong man. Isn't that well put? I got so caught up in being angry at them and holding a grudge against them, I put myself in the wrong. I began to see myself as God saw me, which was a very different picture than the one I had of myself. I don't know how to explain it. 
I can only tell you that I sat there and realized how my sin, my pride, my selfishness, and my ill will had eclipsed me from God in Christ. I was the center of my own life, not him. That big I had to be crossed out. I saw my resentments against those men standing out like tombstones in my heart. I asked God to change me, and he told me to put things right with them. It produced in me a vibrant feeling as though a strong current of life had suddenly been poured into me, and afterwards a dazed sense of a great spiritual shaking up. And then he wrote letters to those six men to apologize for holding resentments towards them, though they had wronged him. And then soon thereafter, he started a group at Oxford that was called the Oxford Group initially, and it was very much like the the group that John Wesley had started, where they gathered to dedicate themselves to surrendering power over their own lives over to God, to live powerlessly, believing that as they were transformed morally from within, it would transform their community, which would go on to transform their nation, which would go on to transform the world. They did not take a top-down approach to changing the world. They started within themselves, saying that if we change ourselves, if we become a holy people, it will change the world. And out of that Oxford group, just a few years later in 1935, a man came out of that group and started Alcoholics Anonymous using exactly the same principles of the Oxford group. I am absolutely powerless to make my life the way it should be. I know there's a God out there watching over me. I'm going to give all power to God. The first surrender that we must commit ourselves to, if we would make of ourselves living sacrifices, if we would move from Eden to Gethsemane, is to say, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I need you to put your Holy Spirit within me. I need you to guide me and teach me and lead me. I can't do this myself. The second surrender is then a surrender of self-discipline, where with the will that we have, with, that is within us, the, the will that the Holy Spirit has now empowered, we choose to make good decisions. We, we go through the rough, challenging struggle of disciplining ourselves to live right. We try to set our relationships right by living gracefully, by biting our tongues when we're mad, by not seeking revenge. We seek to live lives of of health instead of self-indulgence. We seek to live lives of generosity and open hands instead of greed. It can look like moralistic, legalistic religion on the outside, but it's not. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's self-discipline. And so, for we who seek to live holy lives, to follow after Jesus, don't drink too much, don't smoke, don't overeat, don't hold grudges, don't cling to anger, don't seek revenge, don't indulge lust, don't have sex outside of marriage. Don't look at pornography. Don't love money. Don't build your life around the desire to make yourself comfortable. 
don't hoard. Don't worry or indulge anxiety. Don't make decisions out of fear. Don't return to the failures of Eden, but instead, head for Gethsemane. The second surrender is that surrender of self-discipline, where with the power that the Holy Spirit puts within us, we seek to make good decisions. But then there's a third and final surrender. And it's a surrender to God again, where we realize God wants more from us than just good behavior. God wants everything. The third surrender is the surrender of the cross. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. There's a Christian writer named uh, Richard Rohr. And I don't agree with everything Richard Rohr has ever written, but he's said some good stuff along the way. <clears throat> and one of the things he said is that we spend the first half of our lives fighting with the devil and the second half of our lives fighting with God. We spend the first half of our lives fighting with the devil, fighting with sin, fighting with uh, self-indulgences and impulses and, and anger and things that we have trouble controlling. We spend our, the first half of our lives fighting with things that we know are bad. We spend, the spec we spend the second half of our lives fighting with God because we realize God doesn't just want us to be well-behaved citizens. God wants us to die to ourselves. God wants absolutely everything. Jesus says, sell everything you have, give your money to the poor, and then come and follow me. He says, don't hold anger at your brother. Don't even call them a fool. And if they hit you on one cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Do not get revenge. When we read the teachings of Jesus and take them at face value and let them sink deep into our lives, we realize what Jesus wants is a whole and complete surrender of our lives, where we stop living lives of distraction, where every now and then we turn and pause and listen to God, we read the Bible a little bit or listen to a sermon or pray a little bit, and then go back to our lives of distraction. And instead, we live lives wholly committed to Jesus, making him the center of everything we do, and decreasingly get distracted from that vision. The whole of the Christian life is moving from Eden to Gethsemane, making of ourselves living sacrifices, inviting the Holy Spirit in to discipline and change us until we surrender absolutely everything to the God who loves us and will take care of us. And the vision is the day will come where we stand in front of his throne and hear him say, this is my child with whom I'm well pleased. Amen. Jesus, send your spirit into us. Empower us to live holy lives that we might please you. Call us to health and grace and love and forgiveness and generosity. Jesus, give us the power to surrender everything. May your will be done and not ours. Amen.
God bless you. Go be in the church. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.